And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Donna Dort. Donna Dort. Donna Dort. This is Lee Dort and I'm Donna Dunk. This is Lee Dort and I'm Donna Dort. I'm Josh Giddy and I'm down to dunk. Hey, this is Kenny Hustle and I'm down to dunk. I'm Darius Baisley and I'm down to dunk. I'm Mike Muscala and I'm down to dunk. This is Poku and I'm down to dunk. I love cereal. Captain Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cracklin' Oat Brand. Oh, I can have these? I'm going to share with my team, but I'm a hog most of them. Welcome to Down to Dunk. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. We're part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. It's an outrageous deal. It's not going to last that much longer. I can promise you that. And you can get Sam Vecini's draft guide, which will drop soon. You can get all of his articles. Uh, me and Fred Katz co-wrote an article that's coming out either today or tomorrow where we talk to a few NBA scouts about the prospects that could go in the 11 to 12 range. So you're going to want to get that too if you subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash down to dunk. Uh, with me, as always, on Wednesdays is my good friend Alex Spears. Alex, what's up? Hello. Hello, Alex. And with us, to drop some serious knowledge on the NBA draft, we've got Chip Jones at Chip J NBA. Chip, what's up, man? Not much. Can't complain. You know, it's nice Wednesday morning getting to talk about some draft stuff. Really looking forward to it. So let's start it with the number two pick. Uh, you posted a video a few days ago with clips of Chet Holmgren in the pick and roll as the roll man, as an example of something he didn't do a lot at Gonzaga, but was very good in the limited opportunities that he had. Are there any offensive skills that you think that might be hidden by his role at Gonzaga? And more generally, what do you think of his offensive role? What do you think his offensive role will look like in the NBA? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's like a lot of things the Gonzaga context like helps with and a lot of things that it maybe didn't help with. So I'd say like man, like really easy, low-hanging fruit. Like he can already do that. He just wasn't allowed to do it. I think another idea that kind of is taking advantage of his ability to handle the ball and kind of flipping the pick and rolls and letting him handle the ball in the pick and rolls. I think that's part of why like Paolo and Chad are such kind of dynamic offensive prospects is because both of them can, you know, operate as either they as either role in the pick and roll, right? And I mean, that's, you know, the most common thing you're seeing in the NBA. So I also think like one thing they didn't really get to use that would be pretty interesting was using him as like a, a passing hub in the high post. He didn't really get a ton of time to do that. There was some like high low stuff with Drew Timmy, but usually Timmy was kind of like the, the high man for that. And Chet was kind of just, you know, play finishing at the rim. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be really interesting because he makes a lot of really nice reads. And also, like, 
you know, you kind of see it with like Evan Mobley. Like when you're that tall, it's just really easy to open up the angles to pass. And like, you know, he's got good vision. He's a good decision maker. So like putting Chet in positions to like make decisions, I think is really beneficial. I would say the other, the only other thing at Gonzaga was he had like 39 total, pardon, 39 total possessions where Drew Timmy and Anton Watson weren't on the court. So Mm -hmm. he basically never played five out. So being able to kind of, you know, put him in some five out spacing at times, I think could be really helpful, even though I don't think it's necessary, but it would be interesting to see kind of how that would change his ability to kind of attack the rim from the perimeter. Um, And then in terms of what his offensive game at like the NBA level would look like, I think generally like you want to get him a lot of looks at the rim and kind of take advantage. He has really, really nice touch at the rim. And then like that catch radius is so high that you can kind of just throw things up for him at times and he's just going to find a way to get it in. Um, but I think like the, the really big thing with Chet is like, even if you don't necessarily believe in like the ball handling stuff, especially like year one, year two, like one thing that can just get you on the court is just being able to hit a three and like make the right pass. And he's like phenomenal at that stuff. Like when he's forced with like, when he's faced with like a decision, he's really good at just, you know, like committing and instantly finding the right thing. And then like, he's obviously shot pretty well at Gonzaga. Wasn't like a super high volume, but I do think he'll be like a solid NBA shooter, like pretty early on. And then obviously, like, just making the right pass. So I think, like, even just kind of spacing the floor and connecting play, kind of like how Mike Muscala, I think, has been doing for you guys in the past, I think he can do that, like, year one pretty easily. And then also you've got, you know, the roll man stuff, being so good at finishing, possibly, like, the ball handling stuff, all of that kind of on top as, like, things he can keep getting better with. Yeah, you, you had another tweet that was really surprising to me, although it makes sense because we, we've seen those coast-to-coast highlights of Chet. Mm-hmm. But you had the top five prospects at, ranked by ESPN, which is Chet, Jabari, uh, Paolo, uh, Jaden Ivey, and Keegan Murray. And you just gave us five random numbers that were the points per possession as transition ball handlers. And Chet was like by far and away like the best of this group. Now, it's, it's 39 possessions, but he was 1.359 points per possession which is just kind of wild. And and the, the fact that he can do that in transition as the ball handler is kind of like lets you know how, how confident he is in that handle, that he's willing to do that. Yeah, especially. I think one thing that's really big with Chet's handle, like the biggest thing limiting his handle at this point is like when he's in the half court and he catches on the perimeter and like his man is right in front of him, he struggles to like get his handle started. Mm-hmm. Like because someone can get up under him and get really mm-hmm. close to him he has no space to get the ball down and start going. But in transition, like on defense, he's creating a ton of stops and then he's grabbing defensive rebounds and then he's just running full court and he's kind of hard to stop because it's, you know, he's got like a, he loves this behind the back move. He's able to comfortably spin over both shoulders. So if a defender comes at him like head on, he's just going to spin off of them or he's going to go behind the back and switch directions, kind of like, you know, reading which way their hips are facing and go in the other and then it's one dribble at the three-point line, and then he's just going to take two massive steps and dunk. And he's comfortable, again, going with, like, spins and stuff on those, you know. If he gets past that first level and then there's that second defender at the rim there, he's just going to spin off of them or he's going to kind of reach around them. So, I mean, as a transition ball handler, I think that's going to be a huge thing. And I think that's, like, kind of the biggest thing for me with Chet is, like, I think people underrate how easy a lot of offense is going to be for him just as, like, a transition ball handler because he kind of just scored at will. It didn't really matter to the opponent. And then, like, in the pick and roll, just cleaning stuff up at the rim because, like, there's not really guys with his level of size and touch and flexibility where he can kind of just grab things and contort and still finish through things. So, I mean, I think the transition ball handler stuff's huge. I think it's a lot of really easy offense. 
and it kind of synergizes with his defense really well because he's creating so many stops, which is giving more transition possessions, which he loves to operate in. You mentioned that uh, Chet hasn't, he didn't have many possessions in like five out mm-hmm. um, lineups. So that kind of relates to a question from one of our listeners at Matt Sanders NBA. Wanted to know, do you think Chet prefers having another big match with him, which could have played into why he chose Gonzaga with Timmy? Does this thought process increase the odds of a Duran pick at 12, or does that limit a very flexible roster Presti is building? What do you think about like the ideal front court partner for him? Yeah, I mean, I think that like the I think he likes playing with another big just because having that like high low stuff, like you saw it with again, like Cleveland's kind of the obvious example that keeps popping up. You saw with like Larry Markin and Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. Like, there's a lot of teams that just don't have one seven-footer, let alone two. So they could just pass over the top of teams, and it's like this super easy offense. And I think anytime you can create easy offense for a prospect, like a young guy who's developing, that's huge for him, right? Hmm. So, I mean, I think playing him with another big so he can kind of do that high-low, just like passing passes, he's really good at finding like just the right touch and angle to get the ball into the post when he's got a teammate who's got like an advantageous situation. So, I mean, I think playing with another big would be really smart early on, but I don't think it's necessary. And I think part of the the flexibility thing is I actually lean the other direction, right? Because a lot of people talk about, like, maybe, you know, Chet can't play center. I think even if you don't buy into the center things, then he can just be one of the best help side rim protectors out there, right? He can just come in from the weak side as the four. So I think, like, in terms of flexibility, I think Chet can be ran as the five just because, like, yeah, maybe against Embiid or not even Jokic maybe, but like Embiid and stuff, maybe there'd be issues, right? But that's not most games. Like most teams aren't equipped to really play through the post through their center. And then you can also run him as that primary rim protector, especially once he puts on a little more weight in like year two or three. And you can also run him as that help side rim protector. So I actually think it's like a lot of flexibility. As for the Gonzaga thing, I think that's because of Jalen Suggs. They, uh, they went to high school together at Minnehana in Minnesota. And they were like really good friends. That was his pick and roll partner in high school. And, you know, Suggs went to Gonzaga and I think had a really good time. So I think that probably played a large factor in why Chet chose Gonzaga. Yeah, that makes sense. What well, what would you say is like the most misunderstood part of Chet's game? Um, I mean, part of his game that's misunderstood, I would say probably like the the strength stuff on the interior. And like I think that people don't realize like I hear a lot like, oh, any coach is going to be like, oh, well, we're just going to attack him. Literally every coach he's ever played against in any game he's played for like the last six years has done that. Like that's the, every everyone thinks that that's like the first thing. Right. So I think one thing you can look at is, you know, like, oh, a ball handler isn't the burstiest. So how do they you know, how do they counter defenders? Because they're not going to blow by them. Right. So then you look at Chet. Like there's a couple things he does and the ways that he kind of absorbs contact to try to not take as much like kind of brunt from that. I think there's a really good clip when he was against Jalen Duran in the post and against Memphis in the tournament game. Um, So one thing Chet does when he's like post defending is first he'll spread his legs pretty wide to try and lower his center of gravity because the lower his center of gravity is, the more his strength plays up. And I do think like, yeah, he's pretty thin, but I think like pound for pound, he's pretty strong for like being 195. You know, there's some guys like, I think Isaiah Jackson in Indiana is a great example where he's like rail thin, but super strong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes guys are just stronger than they look. Um, so, I mean, he's really good at like lowering his center of gravity. And also that kind of prevents him from getting drop stepped because his legs are so far out wide. You can't hook that leg around him. So I think that kind of plays up in his post defense. And the other thing is like when he's the, here's the big thing for Chet is going to be like seeing the contact coming. Right. So if he sees contact coming, he does things like he'll stick his hip out. 
So that way when a defender or when a, like a driver wants to get their shoulder into Chet's chest, his hip is stick that, like stuck out. So their lower bodies kind of collide and that absorbs a lot of the contact. So then Chet doesn't get moved back. He did that against um, Paolo Bancaro in the Duke game uh, twice. I think that game was really funny because there was one highlight where Paolo like kind of destroyed him. And then there was like five where Paolo like got destroyed and then eventually just stopped trying him. And none of those really got like any, it was all like the one and one, which Chet had already blocked him once before that in that game. But so I would say like the ways Chet absorbs contact. So the big thing for Chet is like, if he sees the contact coming, he's going to do something like stick that hip out or have lower his shoulder to prevent them from getting into his chest and really like pushing him back and affecting him. But if he doesn't see the contact coming, like he didn't expect it, then yeah, that's where you get the times where he just gets kind of blown back. Hmm. Right. So I think the big thing for Chet is going to be like, as he continues to learn, how much can he lean on this? You know, if he sees contact coming, he can totally deal with it. And can you put him in situations where he is only going to be getting contact that he sees coming? Right. So I think a lot of stuff like that's really important. Uh, so you mentioned uh, the Suggs Chet connection. Let's say the Magic go with Chet at number mm-hmm. one. We've already heard Scuttlebutt of OKC possibly being interested in Jay Nivey in that scenario. A lot of fans want Jabari or or Palo, but you're the GM. How would you rank that next group of players for OKC at two? If I Chet's think, off the board, I think you just take Palo, and there's like no thought about it. Anything else? Yeah, a Chet and Palo for me are just like by far the two best in the class. Like no one's really close to them. Yeah. Interesting. What, what is it about Palo's game? Like, like, because I'm sure you've seen this. Like on a lot of mock drafts, like it seems like, like Palo's not even getting mentioned in the first two picks for whatever yeah. reason. Like, why do you think that's happening? Like, are, are people just missing? Like, it, it feels sort of similar to like the Jason Tatum thing back in the day, where like everyone's just hyper focused on his flaws and think that oh, he relies on tough shots and is he going to be able to make those in the NBA? Like it feels like a very similar conversation. Do you think people are just think overthinking this? Well, I think the, the first thing that's like the really, the biggest thing to keep in mind with Paolo is like, from what I understand, like a lot of like teams and stuff, they're really focusing on scouting, like as their season ends, right? That's when like the player, like the prospect scouting really starts ramping up. Mm -hmm. And so they're really focused on, I think a lot of the college stuff, but like something to keep in mind is Paolo's high school tape is absurd. And, like, you can be like, oh, well, it didn't necessarily translate to the next level. There's, like, a couple of reasons for that, right? But, like, one thing that needs to be understood is, like, coming into this year, Chet and Paolo were the top two recruits in the high school class. And, like, it was not close. There wasn't really any conversation for anyone else. I mean, Jaden Hardy was a little bit close. But other than that, it was, like, really those two guys. And so there's a couple things. One um, that's important to keep in mind, right, is Paolo kind of, I think, overbulked. He was a lot quicker when he was in mm-hmm. high school. And so I think he's at, you know, he's a little over 240 now. I think maybe, you know, five, 10 pounds lighter. He gets a little bit more of that quickness back and that helps him. I don't think he'd lose like too much of the strength for that. So the other thing with Paolo is like, again, we can go back to roll, right? Because like, like we mentioned earlier, like Paolo can operate as the ball handler or the kind of screener in the pick and roll. And he's like, he flips his hips incredibly quick. So like when he is like popping or rolling, he gets out of there so quick. It's like kind of crazy to watch. Um, so I'd say like people kind of misunderstood, misunderstand that like they look at like all those long twos and isolation and like the post-ups and they're like, ah, that's not super efficient offense. But like Paolo can operate out of the pick and roll a ton, but like Duke just didn't really do that, especially as the ball handler. Like I mm-hmm. think pretty convincingly, Paolo is probably the best passer in this draft class. Like, and it's not really very close, I think. 
the like the multi-layered like pick and roll reads and like the timing and the understanding of like you know a lot of guys struggle with this where like there's a weak side defender who has to like tag a roller but is also covering guy on the perimeter and they're kind of overloaded I think one guy who this really pops up with is Benedict Mathurin. Mathurin just throws the pass instantly and doesn't wait. So then that guy doesn't have to make a decision and the advantage is kind of gone, right? Because he can kind of float in between both choices. Pass is made, right? Whereas Paolo's waiting for that defender to commit to one thing and then finding the other guy. So I think that's big. And then I would say like, I think people misunderstand like Paolo's flexibility is like incredible for his size. Like there just aren't guys who really like move like him. So I think that's like a big thing. So I think like, generally like the over bulking plus like the Duke context, maybe not putting him in what he's going to do in the NBA. And then on top of that, I think like, I'm, I think one big thing to keep in mind with Paolo is like his ability to like handle the ball. That is like kind of like the flexibility size and like ability to handle the ball, the intelligence. That's like a really easy recipe for upside. Like if you look at the guys from last year's class that like, kind of blew everyone away. You're talking like Cade, Evan Mobley, Josh Giddy, Scotty Barnes, Franz Wagner. These guys are like, maybe Giddy's not as fluid, but the rest of them, they're like really fluid. They're really flexible, right? They're really big and they're really smart. That like generally just betting on guys who are like bigger than everyone else, smarter and like super fluid and they can kind of get anywhere on the court. Those guys are just good players and they're not common. There's not a lot of them. Last year was like an outlier because we got so many. Yeah. So I think like passing on one of those guys is a bit naive in my opinion. Yeah. Hmm. I, I've, I've always kind of thought that Paolo fits the thunder in a way because they, they've been looking for players that are like good passers, like intelligent on the court yeah. and then have something that, you know, you can't just stuff you can't teach. And Paolo's got a ton of that. And I, I worry that if, and Chet to me is like the guy, like if Chet's there, he's the guy. However, I just I just worry about anybody else um, other than Paolo, and you can you can see some of the stuff with other players, but I, I don't know. I would be concerned. Um, so let's talk about front court mates for Paolo. So let's say Paolo's the guy. What kind of front court mate would you want to pair with him? Right. So I think the the one big thing is like Paolo cannot be your primary rim protector under any circumstance. Like he cannot do that. Yeah. He just doesn't like he doesn't get up very high when he's backpedaling and his arms aren't super long. He doesn't really have the length. So you really need a guy that's going to be a primary rim protector. I think Paolo is he's not really great as a secondary rim protector either. I think that's like kind of the biggest thing with him. I think a lot of people are scared about the defensive engagement, but I'd be more worried about like the long-term value as a rim protector. Cause I'm pretty big on getting like a lot of good rim protectors out there and having Paolo, he's probably going to be, I think he can play the three to be honest, but I would say there's some slight concern with him as like, you definitely need someone who's like very defensively solid next to him. And I think mm-hmm. other than that, like he's really good at interior passing. So I would say someone who has like good hands, someone who has like a solid, like catch radius. And then someone who's like definitely like, a very good primary rim protector would be who I would be looking to pair with Paolo. So what about like- somebody in this draft? Is there anybody in this draft like at 12 that you think fits that? I think if Jalen Duren falls, he fits that. Okay. If not, I, I, I'm not really super high on any of the other centers in the class. Uh, yeah, because we actually had a question uh, from listener at David underscore BF9 who wanted to know which of those big men would you choose, Jalen Duren or Mark Williams, regardless of who OKC selected but mm-hmm. or considering that they take uh, Paolo. 
what do you think about the difference between those two? Sounds like you're not very high on Mark Williams. No, I'm definitely a lot lower than most people. So I would say like a couple things with Mark Williams is like, I think like some prospects get these kind of like, um, they have these like skills that kind of like don't interact well and like they'll get a lot of credit for one skill and then like people will just kind of assume that another thing works well for them. So one thing with people are really big on with Mark Williams is like his recovery speed. Like he's pretty quick for his size, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is like people like when he switches on the perimeter, I actually think out of all the guys in the class, he might be the worst perimeter defending big like his. So his one of his big problems is like his upper body is really built out. He's like pretty strong. He's like well built. His lower body is really thin. So he's very top heavy. So like when he kind of like is forced to like lean in a direction, his momentum really carries him in that way. And that leads to him getting blown by a ton. And I think in general, like, he really struggles guarding on the perimeter. And then he also has some things with like his shoulder that I'm kind of concerned about. He measured with this like crazy standing reach because he's seven, two with a seven, six wingspan. Right. But his shoulder, like he, on his contest, he's not getting like a 180 degree angle straight up. He's getting like a 140 degree angle. So I think there's like some, maybe some flexibility issues in there, some tightness. So a lot of times finishers can like just finish over him because his arms aren't straight up. They're like kind of in front. And I think at times that can lead to him getting called for fouls just because he's not contesting straight up. So that's a bit worrisome for all. Like those things can be fixed, I think, right? When you get in that point where you're trying to rebuild someone's body as a young player and develop them, it kind of comes down to like, okay, well, we have to you know spend a year and a half working on all this body stuff before we can really get into the development. And then all of a sudden they're 23 and you're just starting kind of the getting better and getting more skilled thing. So I think that's something that's kind of concerning for me with Mark Williams is just like some of the movement stuff is a little bit a little bit off-putting to me and I think can kind of get him in trouble a lot of the time. And on the flip side, it sounds like you're much more confident in Jalen's ability to guard on the perimeter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Duran's like truly like a 99th percentile athlete. He's definitely up there for like probably top three athlete in the class pretty easily. Um, so, I mean, I think one thing that like is pretty – pretty commonly known in like draft circles is like guys who are like really young and really productive are like just good bets. Jalen Duran is like the second youngest player in the class. He doesn't turn 19 until November, yeah. like pretty late on in November. Um, so first he's already like six, nine two thirty at 18. Right. And then second thing would be like, he put up like multiple 2020 games as an 18 year old playing against pretty good competition. That's kind of like crazy. Mm -hmm. like uh with Duran that i find kind of funny is like before the year like people i think with shade and sharp they're like oh he was the number one ranked high school player in his class and he reclassed up and joined like this year so it's like oh you're getting the number one player last year to my understanding jalen Duran was ranked ahead of shade and sharp and reclassed just before the year so he could play like like the whole thing with sharp is like oh he's top five pick because he was number one high school player last yeah. year I'm pretty sure Duran was ranked ahead of him and then Duran reclassed up. So that's why Sharp got bumped to number one. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> that's interesting. Do, do you, w w is there any possibility that like a Duran Chet front line would work? Oh, yeah. I think it'd be phenomenal. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, for sure. Talk me into it. I need you to talk me into it because I'm, I'm right now, I'm team don't draft a center in the lottery. That's like, I've, I'm firmly there, but I need, you to, I need you to talk me out of that take right now. Okay, okay. So here's here's the thing. So I'm assuming this is just in reliance to like a Mark Williams or a Jalen Duran, right? As like the guys who are kind of considered there. Yeah, it's it's more of like the concept that you can get a center in the NBA. Like you can, okay. you can acquire one. Like the Thunder have like a billion first round picks. They could turn 
even a late first round pick into a good center, like pretty. Yeah, easily. yeah. I definitely, I definitely get that logic. One thing that's big for me is like having a center who can play every type of coverage for the pick and roll. So like whatever is best coverage for the opposing team, you have some guy who can play that. So I mean, I would think like especially if you're going with Chet. I think Chet and Jalen Duran can give you like different types of kind of rim protection, right? I think Chet can give you that more like kind of classical drop, I think a bit better. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would be more confident in Duran in like a show and recover or kind of, uh, you know, like a blitz. I think Chet's actually pretty good in blitz. So maybe actually Chet's probably better than J- J- Chet's pretty good blitzing, but like the show and recover sometimes when he's like really guarding the perimeter is a little suspect. Sure. Um, that back to Duran. So he's really young and then he's also. Like he's six nine, so he's a bit undersized. Yeah. But I think one thing that's really important with Duran that like I kind of have been looking at is like, you know, people always say like, oh, who is your Giannis stopper or Embiid, right? Those two guys come up a lot. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if you're gonna win a final, you might have to beat those guys. Who's gonna stop them? I actually think one of the players with the most success defending those guys is Nyeka Kongwu on the Hawks. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there was a point where um, Embiid had a really hot streak this season, like right after the all-star break, I want to say, or maybe right before where he was scoring like 35 points every game for like 15 games. There's one game in the middle of it where he scored like 23 on. And that was when he was guarded by Okongwu. So I think the big thing is like those guys, they like, you know, facing up and getting the, that dribble off and getting like that, you know, into that two-step pattern to like get around a guy and get to their, you know, dunk or layup or whatever shot they're looking for. But with a guy like Okongwu or Duran, they're big enough and strong enough, right? Because their center of gravities are a bit lower to like be strong enough to contest those guys. And they're able, they have both have long wingspans and they're both really good vertically. So they can get high enough to contest those shots. But when those players face up against them, they're shorter, right? So they can get their arms under them and into their handle and really bother them. So one thing that like, especially when Giannis, I think when the Bucks played the Hawks in like last year's playoffs and then one game that I watched this year, like Giannis is catching the ball a lot further away from the basket and bead too. They start catching further away from the basket because if they catch like really close, they get the ball close to the basket. They can't get their handle off because these like bigs that are a little bit smaller can get their hands under them. And it's kind of like Chet where guys are getting under him and he can't get his handle off. I think Duran mm. does similar things to that. And I'd also say, like, Jalen Duran is, like, truly a 99th percentile athlete. Like, he's going to come in the league and be, like, one of maybe the, like, like second or third most athletic big in the league just, like, off-rip immediately. Mm. Like, this guy is truly a sensational athlete. And then the other thing I'd keep in mind is, like, on the offensive end, he's a pretty good decision maker and passer. Like, he makes a lot of really, really nice passing reads. So I think what you guys are talking about, like, you know, keeping the ball moving and getting guys like that. I think the big concern with Duran is like, it's not the rim protection. It's like the offense. Like you can't really create a ton offensively. And it's like, what do I want with that? I think he's a really good decision maker and he's a really good rim runner. Like his lob radius is absurd because he has like a seven, five wingspan and like a 45 inch vertical or something at six, nine two thirty or whatever. Right. So, I mean, but like how many bigs that are like all defensive caliber are really like, if he can like run the pick and roll and like go for a lob and like operate DHOs and make good passes, you don't really need him like self-creating shots. But then on top of that, he's like the like the second youngest guy in the class. He might be the youngest if Leonard Miller goes to the G League. Mm-hmm. So like he's the youngest. He can develop. Like there's there's a lot of time. You get a lot of time with him because he's gonna be 18 when you're going through summer league and stuff. Yeah, I guess one of my concerns was like what you mentioned earlier about Chet. Like he's so good around the rim. Mm-hmm. And so if you're pairing him with a center who primarily operates around the rim, are you then pushing Chet to the perimeter, which he, he can still be good there, but are you like taking away this really good aspect of Chet 
in favor of Durant. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing I would say is like there's ways around that. Like especially like one thing that a lot of teams will run that like kind of com- almost completely mitigates the need for like five out is like delay offensive sets, which is where you're basically running four out and then the big is trailing. So like the big will throw the inbound pass. Your offense will get set up and basically four out and the big is trailing and then it'll usually lead into like a pick and roll, right? Mm-hmm. So then because the big is trailing and they like set up for a pick and roll, their man has to step up to guard that pick and roll. And all of a sudden the paint's open. Like a lot of teams don't have a center that can shoot, but they'll just run delay, which keeps their big like kind of in the kind of in the backcourt coming late and the opposing big will step up. And then you basically have five out, even though that guy can't shoot. And the yeah. other thing I'd say is like Chet's really flexible and he's good at moving through like tight lanes and stuff. And Duren's pretty good at like sealing driving lanes. So I think like you get that value of like Duren's strong enough and smart enough to like box guys out and create space in the paint. So I actually think he's like opening stuff up in the paint. I think Mark Williams is the same way. Both of them are really good at like sealing their man and creating an open place for a, like a teammate to go into around the rim. So I actually think they can kind of help spacing because like at the rim, just because they're like opening up these like spots where they need to be right. Just by being in the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this pitch that you're making for Jalen Duren because we, we've been talking about how like it feels like you can basically fit anyone on the thunder, like uh, yeah. of these top prospects. I mean, we've even had conversations about Jaden Ivey running a three guard lineup. Um, but there was that was like the last hang up for me. Like if we do draft Chet, like can you really draft another center at 12? But I'm I'm becoming convinced based on what you've said so far. I'm I'm more open to Duran now. I'm I don't like the Mark Williams pairing at all. I think a lot of people do like that just theoretically, but I'm like totally out on that cuz I think you can find a a similar player to Mark Williams. But yeah, I mean if the Thunder, I mean the Thunder do just as much or more scouting than anybody else in the league. And if Presti's convinced that Duran would work, like I think that you have to you have to buy you have to buy into that because yeah. you know I think Sam has seen seen these guys a lot. So that actually leads right into our next question because let's move on to the pick at 12. Because because there's been rumors that the Thunder could be interested in moving up. Is there anyone in the middle lottery who stands out to you as an obvious target for the Thunder or someone you would like them to draft? Is that player Jalen Duran, or would there be someone else that you think would actually be a better selection if they're moving up to like seven or something? So yeah, if you're moving up to like the seven range, I would say there's a couple guys that really stand out as like guys I would look into. Um, so I think a couple guys off rip, like, Malachi Branham stands out in that range. I think Malachi Branham's really good. And I think that's from what I've been hearing, that's like that, like kind of seven to nine, maybe 10 is probably around the range he's going to be going. Really? And so, yeah. So Branham's really, really good at like his shot is like phenomenal, Mm -hmm. like just a a really, really good shot maker. Um, He was a freshman. He kind of didn't get a ton of usage in like the first 10 games for Ohio State, kind of needed to lean into him more. And he kind of just like broke out and all of a sudden was a efficient score for them all over and i think he's really crafty in the ways he can kind of create space and i think he operates well without the ball which i think is a good thing to put around guys like mm-hmm. gideon shea so i would say guys i would look at would be um maybe look kind of look into uh, malachi branham i think jalen duran of course i, I really like duran i think he's phenomenal um if keegan murray's available i'm i still like keegan murray i'm maybe not a top five keegan murray guy but i still think in that range i think like towards that like 10 pick he starts becoming like best player available. So for me, the way I look at things is I always want to draft best player available that I can provide context to develop. So like if I can't give ball handling reps to a guy whose entire job is going to be to handle the ball, 
I don't want to draft them because I can't develop them, right? Yeah. Or I don't yeah. have any spacing. I don't want to take a guy that can't shoot if I like am really concerned about the spacing. So I, I would just go for the best player available because usually when you look back at drafts, there's like maybe 15 guys that are like maybe six year starters that like really, really stick in the league. Mm -hmm. So when you get to like reaching for fit at 12, and like there's usually like 15 guys per class that stick you're all of a sudden getting into the range of guys that don't like necessarily always stick in the league. So I'm pretty against like reaching for fit. So I would be looking at like, I don't think Dyson Daniels will be available. I think he's probably gone. I think like Ivy Smith, Ben Carroll, Holmgren are gone. Then it kind of opens up to who's left. I would say like Keegan Murray, Malachi Branham, Jalen Duran, maybe, maybe Jaden Hardy or Johnny Davis, but I feel like you might be able to get Jaden Hardy at like 12 yeah. yeah, I'm pretty big on him. I think he's really, really underrated. So I, I think that would be someone I would love for you guys to get, even if you don't move up. Yeah. So help me with Branham because I, mm -hmm. I worry a little bit about the space creation stuff. And he just didn't take a lot of threes, which for a player like him, I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. Yeah. So the thing I'd say with that is like his kind of like shooting indicators, like his floaters and his free throws and stuff, I think are generally really good. Yeah. So there's a lot of indicators that he's going to be a great shooter and his like numbers on the catch. And I think off the dribble, both are pretty good from three, even though the volume wasn't super high. Right. I would definitely say he's making more shots in the mid range at this point, but yeah. I would like, I would look into the ways like he moves without the ball. I think that's part of what really makes him special is yeah. like, he's really good at finding ways to get himself open and like create these little windows and like get touches in the paint and collapse defenses. I think he's really good at stuff like that. And I think you're kind of just betting on like, this guy's pretty smart. He's pretty athletic. He creates a lot of space. Well, he shot incredibly well in the mid range, like truly elite mid range college numbers. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of just betting on this like really crafty shot maker. That's good at moving without the ball and is super young. Cause I think he's also like not, I think he maybe just turned 19, but he's like, again, one of the youngest guys in the class. Yeah. Super crafty, super smart. You're betting on him being just a phenomenal shot maker, which every sign points to he is. So I think that's kind of the sell with Branham. Yeah. And shout out to uh, our listener at Dylan T37, who wanted to know what you thought about Branham. And I feel like we're doing that. Uh, now, one question I did have, he often gets compared to Johnny Davis just because those are the guards that are in that range. And it seems like one of the big differentiators is their defense. How big of a concern is Branham's defense for you? Pretty big. Pretty big. Okay. I think he's pretty bad on defense. I think he can get better. And I think part of it is like looking at the progress he's made and like what he's, you know, been asked to do, I think is big. And then the other thing I would say is like generally looking at prospects, like the two things you can really like confidently be like, I can fix this are like a shot and on ball defense. Those are like the two easiest things to improve. I think everything else you start getting a lot harder when you leave those two things, but there's like a lot of guys who come into the league and aren't really positive on ball defenders. I mean, most rookies aren't, but like weren't at college. They're not as rookies. And eventually you get to a point where they're fine. They're like average above average defenders. They're not really killing you. So I would say like with Branham's like wingspan and athleticism and just how kind of crafty and intelligent he is. I think you can bet on him becoming like good enough defensively that you don't really care. But yeah, I would definitely say Johnny Davis is like a far, far superior defender. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, let's go. Let's dive into Johnny Davis a little bit more. He's kind of my guy in that 12 range. If they stay there at 12, I, I really like him. Um, I also like his random Taco Bell commercial, which I'm yeah. really <laughs> obsessed with. Um, so like talk about Johnny Davis and how he could fit with the thunder as like the third guard next to Shea and Giddy. 
Yeah, I mean, so the the I think the the first part of the sell for Johnny Davis is like you there aren't a lot of guys who are like underclassmen guards that are averaging 20 points a game in like a power five conference in college. Yeah. That are like, you know, he's six five, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of six five guards averaging that in the power conference as a sophomore. And then there's also like not a ton of guys that are like extremely high motor. So like Johnny is like a fighter. Like that dude has one of the highest motors I've ever seen. He does not stop. He's always like a hundred percent effort at all times. And he was a 20 point scorer as a six five guard in a power conference as a sophomore. So I mean that on like on its own, I think should give a lot. I think the big thing with Johnny that people are maybe missing out on is like, again, like we mentioned earlier, teams and like fans, especially like start scouting towards like March Madness and stuff after that, when the season's kind of over for their team, like Johnny Davis was a playing through an injury in the tournament and the big 10 tournament. He, He got hurt. Right. And then B like if you watch Johnny Davis all season, he was pretty much playing with like the Jordan rules. I saw someone tweet and I thought that was really funny. Like Wisconsin's <laughs> yeah. offense was like an affront to God. Like that was horrible. <laughs> Just was like rough. no spacing. No one could shoot. No one did anything. It was horrible. It was like Johnny Davis would like drive into three dudes and somehow find some finishing angle, like yeah. averaging a pretty efficient 20 points a game. It was a miracle that he did that in that yeah. situation. So, I mean, Especially, like, and then the shooting numbers, they're like, you look at them and it's like, oh, 30% from three, whatever. I think it's a little bit below 50 from two. But like, if you take out like the last like five games of the season where he was just playing through injuries, like he was like 34% from three and like a little, I think he was just at like 50% from two. And then he's basically at 80 from the free throw line. I think Johnny's, another thing with Johnny is like his shooting numbers get weighed down by like when he's uh, shooting off the catch he doesn't prep his shot really well. He's not good at like getting into his rhythm and like prepping. And like before he catches, he's not getting his footwork like set. He like catches, then sets his footwork and it kind of throws off his rhythm. And that kind of, you know, when you catch, you kind of dip and you translate that power off the catch, like the ball coming into you, into your shot. He kind of loses that rhythm because he's not preparing himself before, which is bad, but that's also really easy to fix. And that would instantly kind of give a little bit of a bump to those shooting numbers and the catch. So the thing with Johnny Davis, I would say is like, he's like an, he's really, really smart and crafty. He's really, really good at playing without the ball, which I think people are kind of, people kind of undervalue that when it comes to like guys who aren't going to be like Paolo or Chet, right? It's really important how they can play off of shy, how they can play off of giddy. Right. So then, or Shay. So then it's like, he's really good at moving without the ball. He's also like, he doesn't create the most space for shots, but he seems to be able to make them. Like he's a tough shot maker Mm -hmm. who can operate without the ball and is going to give you a ton of effort. He's maybe the best guy in the class at navigating screens as a defender. Like I don't, I'm like, I have mixed feelings over Johnny's on ball defense because he's really good at navigating screens. He's really good at using his length to like get steals and blocks. Right. Um, But the one thing I'll say is like, he gives his guys on the perimeter a bit more space. So like he kind of like hedges his like, I'll stand like half a step back. So that way when they drive, I can keep up with them and like stay up with them and contest them. But like, Mm. because of that, he's not really getting under their handle or anything. So I would say like, he's like really good at staying in front of a guy and he's really good at like, you know, kind of bothering them around screens, but like his recovery isn't the greatest. And like, he's not like, He's never, I don't think he's ever going to be an elite defender, but I do think he'd be a good one. And I do think he could be elite off the ball. And like the one thing I'll say 
is like Johnny Davis's transition defense. It's a bit obscure of a skill, but he might be the best transition defender I've seen. Like I've evaluated, especially as a guard, like his decision-making on like what direction people are going, like what counter they're going to use and how to stick with them through that. And like blocking shots at the rim and stuff is like phenomenal. So, I mean, I think, when you're getting Johnny, you're getting guys like a proven scorer. He's able to get to the rim as like a secondary creator. He can move off the ball. He's a positive defender and like just incredibly high motor. And I think getting guys that skilled and like tries that hard, it's like if you're already at such a high level where you're scoring 20 points a game, you're moving up to the NBA. You're already one of the better players of the rookies and you tend to like work harder than everyone else. That's a pretty good bet to make in my opinion. Yeah. He's also just like a ridiculous rebounder for a six five yeah. guy just absurd uh okay it's time to ask you about uh jeremy sohan who has become something of a lightning rod among the thunder fan base who is scarred from years of draft prospects who couldn't shoot and never learned how to shoot listener at trey brown town wants to know what is it about jeremy that's keeping him in lottery talks obviously his defense is alluring but what is what is is there something about his offense that i'm missing are there flashes that make you think he'll one day not be an offensive liability in the playoffs yeah, so the first thing I would jump out to with Sohan is like looking at context. Like I, I know it's kind of hard to like, yeah, most of these college offenses aren't good. I just said Wisconsin's was really bad. Baylor's may have been worse. I think it was better, but only by a hair. Like their half court offense was horrible, right? Because like their best guard, who is like their big creator, got hurt and missed pretty much the entire season. So then their offense was like a couple of wings who weren't really like elite shooters, like Sohan and Kendall Brown were both like, they're both like really smart players and they're really skilled, like getting to the rim and stuff and they make great decisions, but they're also like not really scorers. So you have two non-scorers. Their bench is just a bunch of guys who like really are just like, they're not super skilled for college players, but they're like pretty athletic. The guards were like, they didn't really have a point guard because their point guard got hurt. So it's just a bunch of combo guards who weren't really like phenomenal decision makers or shooters with a bunch of wings who were like non-scorers and then a bunch of guys who were just kind of like effort guys. So their offense was pretty bad. So I think like if you put Sohan in a context where he's the fifth best offensive player on the court, it looks a lot better than this where like he was probably like the second best offensive player on the court a lot of the times for Baylor, which is like not great because he's definitely pretty limited. So the thing I would look at is like looking at a guy like Grant Williams, a lot of people just bet on like this guy's like incredibly smart and he's like really, you know, big. And it's kind of just betting on those guys who are like big, smart and fluid. He's a really, really smart passer. He's like a very good decision maker. He works well out of screens. He cuts well. And then the thing I'd say is like someone's pretty good when it comes to attacking closeouts and creating a shot. Like he's not like a phenomenal handle, but he's really good at like getting his body in between himself and the defender and like using like moves to get the, keep the ball away from his defender while he gets downhill on closeouts. And then he's a pretty good shooter in like those mid range. Like he, you know, relocates on the, on like the catch. He attacks the closeout, gets some space and like takes a mid range. He's pretty good on those. He's pretty good finishing around the rim. So, I mean, I would say like the thing with Sohan is like you guys talked about getting like smart players in who like make the right pass and stuff is pretty much a priority. I think that's the thing with Sohan. And I think like how, impactful grant williams has been in the playoffs has like raised his stock among nba teams because i would have to think a lot of them see him as very similar hmm. so many thunder fans favor tari eason over sohan if the thunder are looking for a big wing at 12 uh how would you compare these two and which do you think is a better fit with shay and giddy yeah that's a that's a really tough question because i think they're both really similar and i can understand why there's a lot of uh disagreement on that because i think it's it's really tough to say um 
I personally, like, you know, gun to my head, I'd probably lean Sohan by a hair. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, Tari, phenomenal athlete. I just have a couple things. Like, one is, like, we talked about earlier, where, like, people get, like, Mark Williams gets credit for their coverage speed, and then people just kind of assume he can guard in the perimeter, but he can't. Tari Eason's got this really nice handle, especially when he's at, like, a standstill. But his... Like, he's not really good at, like, getting those moves while he's going downhill. And then he's also kind of, like, his upper body, his, like, shoulders and stuff are a bit, like, tight. He doesn't have a lot of flexibility there. So, like, when he's getting to the rim, like, kind of, you know, contorting around defenders as you're driving through, you know, like, a crowded paint, he really can't do that. And then also, like, he has no left-hand finishing. It's all right-handed. So when you get to, like, the flexibility being a bit of a concern, and then he doesn't really, for some reason, like, he then he's kind of like open windows at the rim, but like only to his right hand. And it really limits what you're doing at the rim around contests. When he's like attacking a closeout or like finishing in transition, he's just going to dunk on someone because he's just a phenomenal athlete. He's massive and he's strong, right? But I think there's like some things with like the handle that people list as like a lot of upside for Tari. But when you're looking at handling, like you're doing it to create like shots at the rim or to create pull-up jumpers mainly, right? Or pass out of it. But the passing really only works if you're pulling in defenders, which is because you're going to score, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his shot, like he he has like super long arms, right? Yeah. So he loads his shot on his right shoulder. Yeah. Like one of his guide arm is like this. Mm-hmm. Like he's loading on the right shoulder. So that shot did not translate to pull-ups whatsoever. He like did he didn't really attempt any. And when he did, like it was it did not look good. It was not close. Like, so I just I don't really think Tari's going to be creating pull-ups and I don't really think he's going to be creating things at the rim. So if you kind of ignore the handle thing, I think Sohan might be a little bit more functional of a ball handler just because he's a bit more like fluid and flexible. And I think his shot is closer to working on like those kind of, you know, 15 footer pull-ups than Tari's. And then in terms of passing, they both make really good passes, but I just think Sohan reads the game a lot quicker. Like a lot of Tari's passes are coming out a bit late or a little bit off target just because he kind of takes like he'll take like one or two extra dribbles after the window is already open and then it'll close in time. And then defensively, I think, you know, people lean on like Tari's steal and block numbers, but like LSU literally played like a full court press pretty much all the time. And Tari was kind of just left by the basket. And it's like anyone who gets over the top of the full court press, you like make a decision on where you should go to like try and contest that shot or stop the next pass or whatever, and just use your athleticism and make decisions, which he's really good at. But, like, he was put in a position that most players aren't, where, like, pretty much every possession they're trying to get a steal or a block. So he obviously gets absurd steal and block numbers, which I think will translate, but I don't think he's, like, going to be, like, the best steal and block guy in the NBA, which is what his Hmm. college numbers would suggest. And, like, just for a little slight added context, LSU's coach, like, literally had, like, tip pass goals. Like, they had, like, a goal of, like, we want to tip 35 passes a game. That was, like, their mantra. (laughs) So, like, they were, like, just trying to, like, get steals and blocks. Like, that was their whole thing, right? So I think some of that can be a little inflated. And I think, like, Sohan is actually pretty good at navigating screens, which I think is a big difference when defending on the perimeter. So a, a quick question that touches on a few prospects we've discussed. Listener at Ryan Pomeroy 16 wanted to know who is the best bet from this year's draft class to guard jumbo creators like Luca, Tatum, Kawhi, etc. Is it Sohan? Is it Eason, Dyson, Jabari? Who would be your number one pick in the jumbo creator defender draft? That's that's tough. Um, I probably ooh, that's really tough because like. If if it's just if it's a one on one, like if it's if we're just playing pickup and it's one on one, I think it's Jabari. 
But the problem is he's really bad at navigating screens, like really, really bad. Hmm. And like hmm. all these jumbo creators are just playing on the pick and roll every possession. Oh, yeah. So I have some concerns about like how effective he can be. Dyson kind of struggles to stay in front of these guys on changes of direction, but he's incredible at recovering. So like, you know, if it's if they're going to take a pull up around the screen, maybe Dyson's not the right choice. But if they're trying to get to like the mid range and like that in between area, he's going to recover and pressure them the best. I think Sohan's probably the best of both worlds where he's able to get over those screens and he recovers pretty well, even though he's maybe not as good of a like pure isolation on ball defender as Jabari. So I'd probably lean Sohan. Okay. Wow. That was a great response. Um, okay. Let's move on to uh, the Thunder also have more picks. Uh, they have the pick, <laughs> pick, pick number 30. They also have a pick in the second round. Uh, who are a couple guys currently mocked? that you commonly see mocked at the end of the first or even in the second round that you feel like you're higher on than the consensus? Ooh, that's a good question. Hold up. I got to, I, I actually, I'm big in like not getting a bunch of outside influence. So like my evals are actually mine. So I don't actually look at big boards, but I pulled up the consensus oh, okay. big board. Let's see. I mean, okay. I know one of them. Yeah. Which one, I know, which one is I know, it? I know you're a fan of Vince Williams Jr. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm very big on, but he's not mocked in that range. So does he, oh, he's does like he... he's like the most slept on guy. I, yeah. I've never even seen him in a mock. No, I, I kind of at some point I would like you to give your pitch for Vince and why why you think he might be overlooked right now. Okay, um, yeah, I'd definitely be down to do that. Just to answer the question at hand first, I would say uh, Jake Laravia. I'm definitely higher. Uh, consensus big board seems to have him at 28. Uh, I think like another thing, like we kind of touched on this earlier, just betting on guys who are like productive at like a young age, right? Mm-hmm. So the big thing with Laravia was like there was this, so there was this thing, right? He went to Indiana State for two years, wasn't really like looked at as a big prospect, then transferred to Wake Forest. So for most of the year, we all thought he was 22 because he was listed as 22 years old. Yeah. But then like halfway through the year, his family came out and like, no, that's an issue. He's 20. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh really? Yeah, he's Jake Larry is 20, <laughs> not 22. You know, he's listed as 22 in a lot of places. He's so actually weird. 20 years old. Yeah, he he was like young for his class. So um, so when you look at it, when we're talking about productive guys who are young, he's a 6'9, uh, two, he's like 6'9, 230, playing in ACC, so a power five conference. And if you're looking at some of the advanced numbers, he had a 65 true shooting percentage. Um, hmm. he got a free throw rate of 0.529, which that's that's basically how many field goals or how many free throws are you taking divided by field goal attempts? So for every like shot he's taking, he's getting the free throw line like 0.5 times. So basically every two shots he takes, he gets a free throw, which is really good. Right. And he's good at making them. So then you've got this like 65% true shooting gets to the line a ton. He rebounds a ton. His assist percentage, even as like an off ball guy was 20%. So he's making a ton of passes. He's got a block rate of three steel. Well, darling, basically. 20 years old, 6'9, 230, like big enough to kind of guard some like interior guys. And like he's solid athletically. I mean, he's like, he's like kind of a dorky looking white dude. So he's not like some uber athlete, but you know, he, he's like a statistical darling at age 20 in a power conference who's pretty big and he can shoot from like all three, he can score from all three levels. So I think that guy's like a really, like, that's the type of guy where people are going to say, oh, he doesn't have like a higher ceiling. So they're going to mm-hmm. like kind of limit him. But like in terms of like, he's just good, like he's just good already. And then, like, you know, he can keep getting better. There are things he can add. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Tell us about Jalen Williams. He's been a, a draft riser and would probably require yes. the Thunder to get a pick in the 20s for them to get him. But are, are you buying his big board rise? 
to an extent because I think he should have been like late first, but I don't buy like people are moving towards lotto territory. And I definitely don't buy that. I think one thing is like oh, one thing that's really moving up is he has this nine inch wingspan, like plus nine. Yeah. Um, from his height, he's got like a seven something wingspan, and he's like, my thing with Jalen Williams is like, first off, like he gets a lot of like people call him like six 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 seven. He's six five and three quarters, so he's not actually like that. Like he's bigger than. Pardon, he's bigger than most guards, but like the average NBA player is like around like six five, six six. So he's like average height. So he's not really like gonna be playing like I, I'm not he's not gonna guard up to fours, I don't think. And then the other thing I'd say is like there's kind of a two-edged sword where it's like, yeah, he has this plus nine wingspan, and that gives him potential. But then like it's also like you were an up upperclassman in the West Coast conference with a plus nine wingspan. He wasn't really a standout defender. So it's like, why can he not leverage that into being dominant at that level right yeah and then the shot i think is like good but it's not at the highest volume and he doesn't really beat guys with like burst or craft i think he's a smart passer i think he's like a good connective player but i don't really buy him going into like the lottery range but i do think around like the 30 34 if you guys can get him there that's pretty good and i wouldn't hate moving up for him in like the mid late 20s but i don't really buy the like super high thing i guess okay so let's talk about vince williams jr he's a four-year player from vcu but he's only 21, which is nice. Uh, you included him in the video you did on draft po- prospects who were being slept on. What is the pitch for Vince, and then and then why do you think he might be being overlooked right now? Yeah, so Vince is Vince is maybe my favorite prospect this year. So I guess I'm a bit biased, but I've I've really really enjoyed Vince throughout the year. Um, so the thing with Vince, like off off the rip, is like he kind of he's a four year player. He wasn't really a high, highly sought after recruit, right? I think he was like a three star, like a lower end three star. Um, so he went to VCU. So first two years, he wasn't like super involved, didn't play a ton, was mainly coming off the bench. Then last year, he really broke out as like a, a consistent starter for them. And one thing that was big was like he kind of figured out his shot. So he shot 41% on four attempts a game in his junior season, right? He was playing off of Bones Highland, who's on the Nuggets now, um, who's also at VCU with him. Then Bones went to the NBA draft. VCU didn't really get, they got a ball handler in, but not to the level of Bones. So all of a sudden they needed a go-to guy. So then Vince, who had kind of been a three and D player his entire career was like pushed into this, like, okay, you're kind of our point guard. A lot of the times he's like initiating the offense and running pick and roll. And for the first like little bit of the season, he kind of struggled with it, but then like he started really figuring it out towards the end. And then all of a sudden, like he becomes this really interesting prospect. So like first things first, he's shooting over 80% from the line for three years now and Mm -hmm. he shot 40 percent from three basically the last two seasons this year he did it on like six attempts a game with a lot of like pull-ups included as well Mm. so i mean this guy's like a knockdown shooter like he is going to shoot from day one in the nba and a big thing with him is like he comes off like zipper screens and stuff and he's hitting these shots off some like movement like you can kind of run him around a screen on the perimeter and he can just catch set and shoot like right away so i would say like his shooting is like very much legit then when you dive into some of the advanced stuff, his passing is really good. So he had an assist percentage around 20, which for a wing is like phenomenal. And then he had a steal percentage of about three and a block percentage of about four. So he's creating a lot of events. The thing with Vince is like really smart when attacking closeouts, really smart passer who like keeps the ball going, can definitely shoot and shoot on a high volume. And like you want him shooting, like he's a shooter shooter, right? Not a guy who's just, you know, spacing the floor. And it's like, he he can make he makes a lot of stuff happen defensively just because he's really smart and he's got a seven foot wingspan. He's like six five with like a seven foot wingspan. So he has like a plus like seven inch wingspan. 
Hmm. And so he's making a lot of stuff happen. And he's really good as like a weak side defender. When you have like two options, he's really good at kind of, you know, hedging and making sure things happen. So I would say like, he's really smart. He statistically like searches very well compared to other guys. I think like in terms of like, if you look for guys who shot as well from three on as high of a volume and kind of had like good enough steal and block rates and had an assist percentage, I think it's like 15 assist percentage, three steal percentage, four block percentage, and like, shot 38% from three on like 10 attempts per 100 possessions, something like that. There's like four guys who come up. It's Vince Williams Jr., Clay Thompson, Paul George, and Courtney Lee. Those are the only guys who ever did that in college. Hmm. So, I mean, I, I think he's slept on because, first of all, he moves like a geriatric. Like, he is like <laughs> – like, he does not move well. Okay, so like – but – He's he's like he's like athletic, but he doesn't really like change direction super well. It's not like super athletic, but he, he can dunk, like he can get up. He's not like a complete non-athlete, right? But he does have some slight issues changing direction. I don't think he's people build him as a three and D player, which I think is why they're kind of missing the point. Because like his um, if you look at him as a three and D player, his on ball defense is just not very good. So it's like, okay, well, he's okay. but again, that's kind of improvable. And then he's an elite help defender, like elite, like phenomenal help defender, one of the best in the class. He's a knockdown shooter. He's a really good passer. So he's kind of like that connector role where like you don't really want them dribbling the ball a ton, but like shooting, passing, and like playing team defense, he's phenomenal. And like yeah, you could probably get him as an undrafted free agent at this point. And like how many guys can shoot, play like good team defense and pass that you can just get for free? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great pitch. I'd seen your video, so I was already in on it. Right. But. <laughs> uh, speaking of videos, go check out Chip's YouTube page, Chip JMBA. You can also follow him on Twitter at Chip JMBA. We have kept you longer than we said already, Chip, and we got to get to an ad break. Chip, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chip. All right. We will be right back after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back from that quick break. Thanks again to uh, Chip Jones at Chip JMBA for coming on the show. Uh, another really great talent evaluator. I've We've been kind of trying to bring on as many guys as possible that have different opinions from consensus. And he's another good one. That was really good. Yeah, the level of detail was kind of insane. 
on some of those answers. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. We told him we'd keep him for about 30 minutes. He stayed on for 50. Yeah. So, And he also does the the videos for Thinking Basketball, if you've ever seen those on YouTube, which yeah. are always like great videos. Ben Taylor does those. Yes. He's like, he, he's a video scout for Thinking Basketball. Yeah, the Thinking Basketball stuff is just, it's it's just a way that I don't think, you know, when I'm well, watching basketball. And it's really, it's it's good stuff to kind of expand your knowledge. And the thing that impresses me about it is like everyone always complains how there's like that like fans aren't or that like smart basketball content isn't being appreciated. Yeah. But then you see something like thinking basketball and he's getting like millions of views. Yeah. On like really smart basketball content. Like it is possible. Like you make videos like Chip does and like you can get a ton of people to watch them. Yeah. And Ben Taylor was he was on a a um, Twitter spaces with Draymond Green yesterday with the NBA. So like don't. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry too much, people. Uh, okay. few things to cover before we go. Uh, you want to talk about this Keith Smith tweet from yesterday? <laughs> uh, sure. I've, I feel like there's been a lot of uh, just thoughts about OKC in general that are... I, I don't want to say like... I mean, it is that they're not informed. Yeah. But it's just like it doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, you could tell... I, I was uh, tweeting about the Russell Westbrook idea. Just yeah. because I, I really wanted people to think about like what what this actually means, because people keep saying like, "Well, the Thunder have all this space." Yeah, they, they don't. They obviously so. have all this space. Like, you can send anyone there. You can send Tobias there. You can send Russell Westbrook there. Yeah, but they really don't. Like, they, they have thirty point eight million dollars that they can use before June third. But that money, whatever they bring in, is still going to count towards next year when Shea's deal kicks in. So, yeah. like, it's very hard to come up with a deal for Russell Westbrook where you both bring him in and don't go over the tax and you're having to send out $16 million worth of contract. So like, it doesn't make sense. And I feel the same way about the Tobias Harris thing where like you're, you have to send out less money in that deal, but now you're bringing in like $80 million over the next two seasons. And what could they possibly give you to it's, entice you to do that? It's just not happening. It's like, just, not just but, flat but, out. But it's every not single happening. national article about like free agency trades it's always well the thunder will they'll take anybody just send them a pick or two yeah but like if wrong. you actually look back at the deals like they robbed these teams yeah like when they got chris paul they got two picks and two swaps yep. they got a pick for al horford both times yep yep when they traded for him and when they traded him away like they're not just doing this because it's fun like they are breaking these teams and also like philly doesn't have any picks to trade now because yeah. of their deal with OKC and that, and then with Brooklyn. Exactly. Yeah. And they're the team that traded us Al Horford for Danny Green, yeah. which feels absurd today, you know, watching what Al's doing in the NBA Finals. Um, at least game one, game two, maybe not. Uh, so here's the tweet. At Keith Smith's NBA, if you want to talk to him about it. Um, <laughs> Andrew, don't sick. Don't sick your violent followers on him. <laughs> I think they've already got him, honestly. I look at like the first two mentions. It's it's people I recognize <laughs> on Twitter. Um, <laughs> talking to teams about the NBA draft. The team that keeps coming up as a natural trade partner for everyone is Oklahoma City, but not for number two, which is just like, duh. Anyways, okay. Uh, seems to be off the table for now. Most are looking at 12, 30, or 34. As one put it, they don't have roster spots for four guys. 
So, my first thought is, that's the dumbest logic ever. We're talking about one of the worst teams in the NBA. Even though there's not <laughs> roster spots, keep, there are roster keep spots. Everyone. There are. We gotta ro- keep everyone, Andrew. Yeah, we no, are. We are pot committed to everyone on this roster. No offense to anyone that has a non-guaranteed contract. Such no as, offense. We don't have to name them. Yeah, you can look it up. Don't have to say their names. But no offense to them. But they can just be waived, and they can create roster spots when they want to. Uh, I just pulled up the Sam Presti quotes. Like I don't even have. To, I don't even have to defend it. I don't even have to like talk about like w- logically why that's a dumb argument because Sam addressed this a few weeks ago. Uh, the first quote that I put out there was not to select a player that you like because you don't have a roster spot for them today. To me, I don't know if that's the wisest thing. <laughs> I mean, and then he talks about how like, you can just carry players on your team through the summer. You can carry all of them into training camp. Yeah. You don't have to make the decision today. So if the Thunder select four players at the draft, it's not like they immediately have to wave Veet and Roby and all those guys. Like, they don't have to do that. They can keep them, and then they can make a trade. They can waive the guys that have non-guaranteed deals. He even talked about how they may eat some money. John Hollinger replied to the tweet and said, like, they did that in Memphis where they had to eat a little bit of money to make things work. The Thunder are probably going to do that. They they may have to just waive Ty Jerome and you still have to pay him. Like, they may do that. I mean, these problems, they, they can't. They're not just going to give away the 34th pick or the 30th pick or certainly the 12th pick because, like, well, we don't have the roster spot for these guys. We need to make sure that, uh, you know, we keep Isaiah Roby on the on the roster here. I mean, that's it's just not going to happen that way. That's not how they're going to function. If They they may think that a guy at 34 is going to be better than all of the guys that are non-guaranteed, in which case you keep, those, you keep that guy and you let the other guys go. Also... In this whole process, the Thunder have so many draft picks, and they have so many opportunities to get better or to take players. There's going to be somebody good the Thunder have to let go. That's going to happen. It happened in the process with the Sixers, and it's going to happen in this process with the Thunder. I don't think they're going to let go of like a superstar or anything like that, but I think that they may let go of a player that ends up being like a really nice role player for somebody. Like That's going to happen just because of the lack of spots. Now, you kind of hope that they can keep those guys and maybe package and trade them or whatever you need to do, but it's going to happen, whether it's Ty Jerome or Isaiah Roby, and they may go on to play and like be good for somebody, and you kind of have to be okay with that because the Thunder are going to have just a crazy amount of opportunities to add players to this roster over the course of the next several years. I think, uh, and maybe Keith's tweet is Keith's tweet is just a issue of wording because I do think there's a very realistic scenario that could be interpreted based on what he said, which is just that the Thunder might do a consolidation trade as they did last year for Jerry, yeah. as they did for Poku. Like that is completely believable, but of course that requires the Thunder getting back a higher pick. Right. They're, they're not going to just consolidate for the sake of consolidation. Yeah. Now the Jerry one admittedly was like kind of, close in value mm-hmm. and and from what everyone says it sounds like they were planning to use both of those picks one for santi aldama and one for jre 
And when Aldama went off the board at the end of the first round, it was like, well, we have to go get our guy. Like these are the two guys we wanted. Mm -hmm. We just missed out on one. And so maybe that was the influence behind that trade, which if you just look at it, like I think it was 34 and 36 for 32, like isn't great value for the Thunder. So, but they got the guy they wanted at the end of the day. Right. Right. So I, Obviously, we're all open to the idea that they're going to make a consolidation trade. Yeah. And I think there's a reading of his tweet that includes that. But this idea that they're going to do it just for the sake of because they're so worried about roster this spots. Roster. Like, <laughs> this is not the roster to worry about. Now, when we get to next year's draft and they've got a billion picks in next year's draft, it could be more of a concern then. If they take three guys in this draft and they're all good and right. like yeah. Aaron Wiggins is so good. And, you know, they may have a problem then. But it's not this roster. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I like a lot of those guys. Personally, they're all, like, wonderful people. And I honestly don't like the fact that some of these guys aren't going to be here just because of the roster crunch and because, like, frankly, they're not top-notch NBA players. And that's okay, too. But they're wonderful people. But they are going to have to move on from several of these guys anyways with this yeah. draft and the next draft. And then you might find yourself in a situation where it's like, oh man, like like they may not be able to just like bring Darius Baisley back because of the roster crunch. Like they might just have to let him go in free agency, like flat out. Or they might have to yeah. trade him for a future draft selection or something like that. Um, but yeah, the roster crunch could become like a real thing. It's not this year. I think there are four guys that you could wave pretty easily and it not impact the future of the Thunder. And we've already seen they've made moves to begin to address this. Like the Shingun trade, a part of that was the fact that you're not bringing another guy onto the roster. You're kicking the can down the road with those two picks, mm-hmm. which you can then, you're, you're just setting yourself up in the future. And that's why I'm really excited by the reports that OKC is one of the teams that seems to be interested in moving up from that 12th pick because that's how you want those picks to be used at yeah, some point you want sure. to feel like Presti has identified a guy in the draft and he is going to go get him with this surplus of picks mm-hmm. that's how we ultimately want those picks to be used as opposed to you know the little jre trades like I, we, we we want to see like oh moving into the top 10 for someone mm-hmm. and hopefully we get one of those trades at some point because we know we'll feel super confident with whoever Presti moves up to get in like a a top 10 scenario like that would be very exciting that if he did that yeah, I mean, if they moved to 7 or 8 or whatever and traded 12 and 30 and whatever else you needed to include to get there, and they took, like, Shade and Sharp, and like yeah. they had Chet and Shade and Sharp and whoever they took at 34, I think you feel super excited about something like that. You'd probably be pumped and jacked. I'd be pumped and jacked, even though I don't... I can't get there with Shade and Sharp, mostly because I'm not with the Twitter propaganda. Like, I just, I'm not with it. But if the Thunder have seen enough from him, or they have talked to, I mean, a lot of this, figuring out who they're going to take, like, you know Shaden Sharp's got, like, great athleticism. He can be a creator on the perimeter. That's great. To me, with Shaden, it's about getting in the room with him and, like, figuring out, like, what kind of person is this? Like, who who is Shaden Sharp? And if he is, like, the phenomenal worker that some people say that he is, and he's got, like, He's got a good mentality. I'd say trade up to draft him. But to, like that's something that we can't know. <laughs> you know, we can't know that right. through YouTube 
and through talking to people that know him. Like that, that's something that NBA teams are figuring out. Um, I, so. I find that part of this whole process so fascinating because mm-hmm. a lot of the guys who we love on draft Twitter, like they're largely making their evaluations on watching film. Yeah. Like they're not necessarily basing it on any type of like draft Intel necessarily. Yeah. Right. But then there's this whole other world with guys like Matt Babcock, who we've had on mm-hmm. um, where like they're getting all this information that we really, we probably will never hear about or we'll get like bits and pieces yeah. From like random sources. Well, we're here about it after like, the draft, frankly, is where yeah. a lot of stuff is. I mean, it's the floodgates open up after the draft. I've experienced it every year where you just you hear everything about what everybody thought about all these guys, you know, afterwards. Right. It's like, well, the reason we took this guy is because of this. Or the reason that this happened is because of that. Like other teams will open up about stuff and I'll either hear it like secondhand or from somebody from another team or whatever will are just willing to talk right after the draft. Yeah. And that's when you'll just start hearing just everything, you know, about what's, what these teams think about whoever. And I, I just feel like every time I have this question of like, why is this guy going lower than I think he is? Yeah. It's, I'm getting to, I'm coming to the conclusion that it's not necessarily a talent evaluation thing. Yeah. It's more like something else is happening here. Either this player is aiming for a specific team and so is doing things to try to get there. And we've, we've heard about stories about that with OKC in the past. Like something else is going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And obviously we're kind of limited. I mean, you're, you're less limited because you talk to a lot of uh, beat writers. So you hear a little, a little, little nibbles, Andrew. Little nibbles here you get there. little crumbs. Little crumbs fall down your way. <laughs> and that, that's, like the, that's like the most exciting part of all this. Just that there's this whole world that we really don't know about and we're yeah. doing the best we can by like looking at watching how these guys look like on a basketball court. Right. But then there's a whole nother world that we just like don't know about. Yeah. It, it really, really matters who these guys are. Like it, it, it matters so much. And McKelly and I were kind of looking at past drafts and like guys that were considered to be like, to have character issues and like none of them outperform their draft stat, like their draft slot, you know? Yeah. Like none of them. And a lot of times, um, a lot of times they were like way overdrafted just because of the talent. And you just don't see that that often anymore. Like, I don't, I don't think that there's character concerns with anybody that's going to be drafted in like the top 15 in this draft. At least you don't hear about it. But there were guys that, you know, in the past where I was just like, yeah, there's character issue with so-and-so. And it was just, I don't know. I I think it's really interesting. Maybe people are better at hiding those today, or maybe they, you know, try to emphasize how important it is to these guys, you know, that that they that they're yeah. living right and working hard. Um, because the truth I feel is, like guys are just so much better prepped. Oh yeah, I, like for for every aspect of this. Yes, I think basketball wise, I think the basketball is just getting better. I think these prospects are like just flat out getting better from like top to bottom. And then the character stuff, I think people are starting to like really understand like how much it really matters, like how hard you work, what kind of person you are. I think people are realizing and players are and the people around them and the agents, like everybody's just doing a better job, (laughs) you know, from top to bottom. It really does feel that way. Uh, Do you want to bring up real quick uh, a listener sent us a uh, clip from Colin Cowherd's show. Sure. 
Sure. He had Chris Mannix on. Uh, it was at Sully Andrew one who sent us this. And Chris Mannix was talking about the Qu- Quinn Snyder stepping down, how most people are assuming that like, if he takes another job, it would probably be San Antonio when pop steps down. Like everyone's making that connection, obviously. Yep. But Chris Mannix brought up that he had heard from someone who knows Quinn Snyder. Well, that like, don't ignore the relationship with Presti. Mm-hmm. And if OKC got to a point where they started wanting to make a, make a push and maybe they wanted to shift from a more developmentally developmental minded coach to like a playoff coach, like don't rule out Quinn Snyder in OKC, which was just kind of like an interesting little tidbit. You know, my, my brain immediately just wanted to dismiss it. Cause like we love Mark Dignall and you know, we think Mark's doing a great job and he's like, Obviously, not being able getting a chance to prove that in like high leverage situations, like in the playoffs, or in any sort of leverage situation, would be nice. Or in any leverage situation, <laughs> Honestly. but but we have seen like positive things, yeah, in terms of development and even in terms of like plays that he draws up, like out out of bounds plays are really good. Yeah. So my immediate reaction was just completely dismiss it. But if you do start thinking about the future, like it's not the craziest idea in the world. No, I mean, it's not something I would I would be shocked if it if something like that happened this season. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. But like down the road, if Quinn Snyder ends up not being a part of the Spurs organization, that is kind of an interesting long term thought. One of the most challenging things for Sam Presti in this next era is going to is is going to be what he had to do in the first era, which I think he decided it too late with Scott Brooks. Was yeah, that for sure. The transition from Scott to Billy should have happened a year before, and could <laughs> have least. and could have been <laughs> way better for the franchise had he pulled the trigger a year before. Yeah. Um, and by the way, there was like if you looked at Scott Brooks's resume at that point, like it was awesome. It was, it was very good. It, it was one of those things where it's like, how could you possibly fire this guy? Exactly. So, like, I understand why. I know. But looking back, it seems obvious. Yeah. And maybe Mark develops into like a very good NBA coach. That's possible. But figuring out whether he's like peaked as a, as like really, really what Scott Brooks was is like a really high level assistant, you know? And that's what he is now. Like he's with the Blazers and it's frankly a really horrific situation for him, at least last season was. But like he's, he's a high level assistant coach that, connects with his players and does a good job and just happened to be in like the right place, right time with the thunder to really capitalize on the hall of fame talent that was here. You know? Yeah. I mean, most NBA coaches have to have that kind of talent and then you have to prove yourself otherwise where like Popovich has proven in like so many different contexts that he's like a really, really good basketball coach. And Scott Brooks is a good basketball coach. He's not a great basketball coach. Um, I think Billy's uh, frankly just like a better coach period. And I think that, I think that they knew that and had they been able to do that, you know, or even like Brad Stevens was always linked to the thunder, you know? Right. And had they just pulled the trigger with Brad earlier, like what do things, what do things look like? So to me, it's going to be like, there's several things that are challenging about Sam's position right now. And one of it, one of those things is just like drafting the right guys over the course of the next few years. And then the the other thing is like having a true pulse 
on what they're going to do with the coaching situation, whether that be like, like I wonder what the markers are for Degnault. You know, what does that look like for him where you're, yeah. where you understand that? Like, oh, wow. Okay. He's, he is going to be our coach for the next 15 years, you know, mm-hmm. or man, he's a wonderful person. Just, eats, sleeps, breathes development all the time, and that's great, and he's perfect for us today. But we're going to have to move on now to this position because he's not ready to, when the when the lights are bright, he's not ready for it. I'm not saying that that's the case. I, I don't, I honestly just have no idea. I hope that he is the guy because he's awesome and is personable, and I, I just think that he's a perfect fit for like Oklahoma City, period but yeah it's something to to keep an eye on it's not something to completely dismiss i mean it's not going to happen in the next year i can tell you that it's just not but in the next two years in the next three years i think we're going to have to really figure out what you know where the thunder are at coaching wise um yeah it's really it's a really intriguing uh plot point and storyline um I would not expect Quinn Snyder to be the Thunder's coach because I do think that he's probably going to want a job in the next year, and I don't, I just don't see that happening. I think the Thunder will still be in development mode when he's ready to take a job. Yeah. Um, so, but just the idea itself is an interesting one because if the Thunder had a different coach in the NBA Finals in t- 2012, that series was a lot closer than many people remember, and. If you just don't play perk, things probably look a little bit different. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're willing to not play perk down the stretch and you just play Nick and Surge as your bigs. So uh all right. Anything else before we go? Uh do you want to reveal who our guest is on Slam and Jam this week? I feel like Thunder fans would get excited if you told mm-hmm. them, Andrew. Or are you keep it a secret? Uh I'll tell them. Yeah, Jake Fisher is gonna come on on Slam and Jam on Saturday. So very exciting. Be on the lookout because it's scuttlebutt season. And And he he's he's king of the scuttlebutt. He's king of scuttlebutt. I would argue. Yeah. He's 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 always willing to say stuff, which not not a lot of people not a lot of people are. A lot of people off the pod are willing to to share some scuttle, but he's uh he's the on on pod scuttle champion. So yeah, so me and Andrew have to work really hard to come up with questions to pull some stuff out of him. So if you, <laughs> if you have any, any ideas or any questions you'd like to ask, so send them our way. Yeah, yeah, that should be that should be really fun. Uh, all right, thanks so much for listening. Hope you guys have a great rest of your Wednesday. Be sure to go to theathletic.com slash down to dunk and get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. It really is a remarkable deal that you just need to capitalize on today. So... Uh, hope you guys have a wonderful day and we will talk to you guys again on Friday.